God, we submit our, our bodies to uh, this drama of salvation in which Christ is the lead actor. Continue to help us as we hear from your word and then later as we come to your table to find ourselves in that drama, to find ourselves with you to hear our voices in the crowd, to see where our intentions overlap with the religious leaders. Help us to get caught up in this, Lord, so that as we get caught up in this, we can be transformed more into your image, that even as we hear from your word that, as Paul said, that we would increasingly have the mind of Christ. So we pray that your spirit would lead us into this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Anybody wearing pure nard tonight? Just curious. Anybody? Pure nard? Nobody? A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? But Jesus said, She has done a beautiful thing to me. Hosanna. Hosanna is, is a word that we've said several times tonight. It's a word that we've sung. Let's, let's all say it together again, just, uh, just to get a good one in there. On the count of three. One, two, three. Hosanna. Hosanna is a very churchy word. How many of you have used or heard the word Hosanna outside of church? Really? As a joke. As a joke. Interesting joke. <laughs> I want to hear that later. Hosanna is a very churchy term. Uh, does anyone, uh, maybe one of our kids... Uh, do you know, like when we say Hosanna, like what, what that word means? It's a, it's a Hebrew word, right? Uh, does, anybody, does anybody know what it means? One of our kids know what the word Hosanna means? Anybody? Any kids? Any wild guesses? Ian, we got a wild guess. I am looking at you. You just look like you got a wild guess. No. <laughs> Anybody, what does Hosanna mean? 
That's close. That's really close. Anybody know? God, save us. Save us. Save us. <laughs> I, I saw. Thanks, Titus. It means save us. Just straight up, save us. I suggest that uh, Hosanna um, doesn't uh, have to be seen just as one of those like really churchy words. And uh, not everyone, of course, would use this word. But behind the word Hosanna is a primal human cry. Save us. Liberate us. Free us from bondage. Save us. That the, ex- the experience of, of having lodged in our deep this primal cry for salvation, for liberation, for freedom is actually lodged within all of us. We all have it lodged in our deep. And some of us cry out, Hosanna, and don't even know that's what we're doing. Save us. We cry out for salvation uh, from God. We cry out uh, for salvation um, from the government. We cry out for salvation from our stock portfolio, from our retirement account. We cry out for salvation uh, from our jobs. We cry out for salvation from certain people, from certain circumstances. It's this primal, basic human cry that we're engaging in, many of us, whether we know it or not. Save us. Save us. And maybe I'm just being one of those guys uh, who you hear who's always like, ah, you know, this is, this is getting really bad. It was better back then, but it's getting worse now. But, but it's my sense of things that at least collectively in, in the world that we live in, so like 21st century Western North America, that um, more and more people are waking up to the fact that the things that we had entrusted our hosannas unto aren't giving us what they promised. That we can't expect what we thought would bring us deliverance, would bring us safety, would bring us liberation, would bring us freedom. It just isn't doing that anymore. We can't, what can we depend on anymore to bring us salvation and freedom? can't depend on uh, the market anymore. We can't depend necessarily as much on our jobs, on like going to college and getting a job. We can't um, depend on the government. We can't depend on the schools even to be certain places of safety for us. And so like bubbling beneath the surface in our culture, maybe you guys are feeling it. Maybe you're feeling it out here or maybe you're feeling it in here is this correct collective cry for Hosanna. Save us. Liberate us. Bring us freedom and deliverance from bondage. What does your Hosanna sound like? What kind of Hosanna is lodged 
in, deep in, in you tonight. Maybe um, you've learned, like many people are learning, that it, it's not safe to, to uh, let go of your Hosanna. To entrust it to someone else. Maybe you've learned that the only person that you can depend on is yourself. Maybe you've learned that it's not um, safe even to tell other people about it. That you've trusted yourself for, for, for people to deliver you and you've been burned by that. Maybe you've been burned in, in religious circles, in Christian circles by that. Many of us have learned that it's not safe to let go of our hosannas and so we keep them in here. We play our hosannas close to the chest. What does your hosanna sound like tonight? Friends, we come tonight in a world in which uh, we cry out for, for liberation and for freedom, but we often feel like it's not safe to let go of our hosannas, to loosen our grip around our hosannas. We hear tonight the good news that we have a king and a liberator and that our king and liberator has heard our cry, Hosanna, and he has come to set us free from bondage and brokenness. Our king and liberator has heard our cry, Hosanna, and he has come to set us free from bondage and brokenness. But he comes not by force and not by cheap pronouncement, but by absorbing our sin and our violence in his body on the cross. And that means that we, like Mary of Bethany, we, like Mary of Bethany, can surrender our hosannas at the feet of our crucified Savior. We can surrender our hosannas at the feet of our crucified Savior, fully and foolishly entrusting ourselves to him in order to receive a new story. Fully and foolishly Surrendering ourselves, entrusting ourselves to him in order to receive a new story. I'll come back to Mary of Bethany. But before we go to Mary of Bethany and we look at this posture that she takes with Jesus and how she surrenders her Hosanna to Jesus, set the scene a little bit for, for this uh, triumphal entry. This entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, um, as, as uh, many of you have probably tuned into, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, there's a lot of people there. There's a lot of people there. In fact, uh, all um, uh, the population of Jerusalem um, during this time, which a lot of people are there for Passover. They've come in to make a pilgrimage for Passover, one of the most important feasts um, in the Jewish story, Passover. When, when uh, they remember how God delivered uh, the Hebrews um, from bondage uh, into slavery in Egypt. All these people are coming into Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, there's different estimates, but the population during Passover might have swelled by like maybe a couple hundred thousand people. So it's kind of the scene where it's like, it's a combination of, of, of different things, of, of, of like hype, of, of excitement, of expectation. Um, some people only got to make this journey because lots of um, Jews were spread out through the Mediterranean world. Some of them only got to make it a few times in their lives. So there's lots of hype, lots of expectation, lots of excitement, um, but also it's, it's a city on edge. 
It's a city on edge. There's, so it's this combination of hype and foreboding. There's this tension in the air in Jerusalem in this time that you could cut with a knife. And especially, and, there, and so it's like this hype and this foreboding and it's kind of like this corporate longing, this corporate excitement that's also this angst. This longing for salvation, for deliverance. Because although um, God's people were coming to celebrate how God had delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh, they knew very well that they still lived under bondage and oppression. They still had not yet fully experienced the kind of, of salvation and renewal that God would bring one day, and they longed for God to come again and to deliver them, this time from under the hands of the Romans. And so there was this, all that was just lodged in there. This corporate angst, this sense of religious fervor, and even of revolution. The religious leaders uh, during this time were really on edge. They were paying um, extra close attention because they didn't want to riot. Because for all anyone knew, at any second, um, there was going to be a revolution and things would get crazy. And in fact, during this time, during Passover, what the Romans had learned... See, normally um, the the Romans stationed a huge garrison of of soldiers um, uh, on the coast. And during Passover, the governor there, uh, the Roman governor, would would bring his soldiers into Jerusalem to have them on alert in case there was a revolution. And and there were during, during this time, in case someone decided to draw swords. And the high priests and the religious leaders um, uh, also really didn't want a revolution. They didn't want that to happen because if, if there was a zealous um, overthrow, that meant that the Romans would come in and they would bring a heavy hand and they would squash it and they would lose power. So they were keeping watch. The city is charged with a hosanna. Are you seeing the picture? And so several characters emerge uh, in this scene. Um, One of the characters is these disciples who have uh, been following Jesus for a while. And for a while, Jesus has been talking about how um, he's he's going to um, suffer um, at the hands of the religious authorities, that he's going to be handed over, and that he's going um, to die. He said this plainly, Mark says, to the disciples. And they're kind of in this weird place of denial, Even while they're with Jesus, before he goes to the cross, they're in this weird place of, surely that's not the way this is going to work out. Surely our hosannas that we we have in our deep, who we're entrusting to this person, it's not going to work out that way. So they're in kind of this denial about that. When Jesus talks about it, they don't like to talk about it. And then, of course, we know that uh, when push comes to shove, they all split and run. There's denial. There's other people... um, with hosannas. Those religious leaders, those high priests, they had hosannas too. They really longed to be delivered, to experience God's renewal. But their their, uh, way that they dealt with their hosanna is that they played it really close to the chest like the disciples did, except they wanted to remain in control. They thought the best way to make sure that their hosannas would, would get locked into place as if they were in charge and they were in control. And so their strategy in regard to Jesus was to destroy him. That's why they wanted to plot to kill Jesus secretly. We heard that in our passage today. 
They didn't want to cause a riot. They didn't want to get the Romans involved because if the Romans got involved, they would lose their power, their security. And they also didn't want Jesus to keep doing what he was doing because he clearly was a threat to their power and their authority. They took their hosannas and they needed to keep in control over it and so they sought to destroy Jesus. And then you also have this character like Judas. Like Judas who... uh, Judas is an interesting character because we all know that Judas is the one who, of Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. And the gospel writers don't talk much about Judas's motivation. But as theologians over the centuries have talked about why it is that Ju- Judas did what he did, most, most of them talk about it as if like Judas wasn't like from the beginning some guy who said, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to betray this guy. But that as that Judas like genuinely had this hosanna lodged in his deep, this longing for God to break in and save and bring liberation and freedom, but he had a very specific idea, like the other disciples, like the high priests and the other religious leaders, he had a very specific idea of what that salvation and liberation and freedom would look like, and it didn't look like what Jesus was doing. And so as time went on, Judas began to discover that that wasn't happening and he became disappointed and disenchanted. And in fact, some some scholars say that when Judas betrayed Jesus, what he was trying to do is force Jesus' hand. That he was actually trying to spark a revolution so that Jesus would then take up arms. He would see that the Romans were coming, that the high priests were coming, that he would take up arms. He would lead lead the revolution, finally, and that they would be in charge. And of course, that plan backfired. So Judas also takes his hosannas, has a certain picture of what it will look like, and it ends in sabotage. And then we have this picture of Mary. Mary at Bethany. And she anoints Jesus. In Mark's gospel, uh, she isn't named. Um, We know by looking at some of the other gospels and how they articulate um, this scene that that this person is Mary at Bethany, probably um, uh, as of Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sister. But in, in Mark's gospel, we just see that, that an anon, it's an anonymous woman. An anonymous woman breaks into a company of men at a leper's house. You see what's going on here. So an anonymous woman breaks into a company of men at a leper's house. Like this is one of those, like imagine the, uh, the, the record coming to like a screech, like, like what? what's going on here? An anonymous woman breaks into a leper's house. And, and like Mark doesn't even explain that. Like, so like a leper's house, he's unclean. Like there's, there's all sorts of like, of, of radicalness and scandal to this situation. So this anonymous woman breaks into the company of men at a leper's house and she takes this oil, this expensive oil, and and anoints Jesus. She does a task, the anointing of someone, the anointing of a king. She does this task that's only made for the authorized religious leaders. And she has the gall And of course, the, the, Mark says that the bystanders rebuke her harshly. The bystanders are, are not willing 
and probably some of the disciples are included in this, the bystanders are not willing to meet Jesus on the cross. And so they show this false piety. But they have no idea what true piety is. They haven't discerned what Jesus is doing. Or they're just not willing to meet Jesus on the cross. So they accuse her with this false piety. Like, hey, like, we could have used this money for the poor. The, the amount that, the, um, that the, this, this uh, essence of nard <laughs> was, uh, was like equivalent to modern day, like if someone had, like, let's say a, a $60,000 bottle of, of oil, of essential oils. Like they really went to town like uh, with, uh, what's that essential oil? Yeah, they, were, they really went to town at Young Living or, and bought like the most expensive, a $60,000 bottle of the good stuff. And so these bystanders are showing this false piety. And like, hey, we could have used that money on the poor. And of course, when Jesus, uh, when Jesus says, uh, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have with me, he's not trying to, um, to uh, create some sort of dichotomy between serving the poor and spending time with him. Right? Like Jesus' whole ministry was focused laser-like on the marginalized and the poor and healing those who are broken and sick. What Jesus is doing is he's calling out their feigned piety, their false piety. He's calling it out. Notice the scarcity. Notice the scarcity at work in the bystanders. We can't waste this cash. We can't waste this cash. Like, we need to use this for something important. We can't waste this cash. But hear what Jesus is saying. Hear what Jesus is saying. There is no waste in what is poured out. There is no waste in what is poured out. Jesus says to this woman that she has done a beautiful thing. She has done a a proper, a fitting thing. She has discerned what kind of king and liberator Jesus is. And so in a sea of, of hosannas around her, she is the only one who has both discerned and accepted what is happening. Her anointing of Jesus is a way of saying, I am ready to go with Jesus wherever this leads. I am ready to go with Jesus wherever this leads, unknown and scary as it is. Right? So she's, she's discerned the fact that where this is going is to, to Jesus' death. But remember, like, she doesn't necessarily know how this is all going to shake out. But she's willing. She's willing to just throw it all in there. To fully and foolishly throw it all in Jesus' camp. Because Mary wanted Jesus himself. She wanted Jesus himself more than she even wanted liberation. Do you see that? She was willing to follow the guy into the end. She wanted Jesus himself, not even deliverance for its own sake. She was ready to walk with Jesus to the, to the cross, and so she throws it all to Jesus. And so she gets a new story. 
She gets a new story. Jesus says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, this story will be told about her. Her life takes on the story of the gospel. She gets a new story. Her life, unlike her brother, whose life, in, or whose life uh, who came back to life with a resuscitation, right? Lazarus was resuscitated. She will experience resurrection, not just a resuscitation. It won't just be like a zombie version of the old thing. She gets a new story. So what does this look like for us? What does this look like for us? It looks like first grappling with what our Hosanna is. What is your Hosanna? What's behind it? What's lodged in your deep, that primal cry for for freedom, for liberation? What is it? Can you name it? To the degree that we're not able to name the things that are lodged in our deep, they will always have mastery over us. Can you name the Hosanna lodged in your deep? And And then can you take it to God? To, to start to aim that Hosanna at God. And then not to just aim it to God, but the third thing, to take it to the cross. Because that is where we meet Jesus. Because that is where Jesus is. Taking our Hosanna, taking it to the cross, means that we are surrendering, we are forfeiting our control over it or even our knowledge about where we think that it will lead. Jesus is inviting us to be right where we are with him on the road to the cross. So this sounds, this sounds simple, I know, but the, if you don't hear anything else that I've said tonight, and if I've already preached too long and you've already checked out, just hear this. Jesus saves us by the cross. Jesus saves us by the cross. And I know that this sounds simple, but many of us, and myself included, live most of our lives avoiding the cross. Are you tracking with me? Many of us live our lives avoiding the cross. Embracing that Jesus saves us by the cross means that we can't save it's not just that we can't save ourselves, right? Like when we embrace the cross, we're like, yeah, we can't save ourselves. Only God can save us. It's not just that we can't save ourselves, but that we don't, we're not in control of, and even if we wanted to be, we, we can't be. We're not in control of how God's salvation continually works in our life. And so to take the posture of Mary of Bethany looks like learning to continually live according to the cross. To continually live according to the cross. To walk in proximity to our King and Liberator, Jesus. It means that we cannot deal with our sin or our suffering in our own power. We don't even know what it means to deal with our sin and our suffering apart from Jesus, apart from the cross. And that's the point. That's the point, is that this is the new reference, the starting point for us. To even, to even understand what it looks like to move forward into God's salvation, it's going to feel like jumping off a cliff. But friends, this is the safest thing that we can do. 
The safest thing that we can do is take our Hosanna and surrender it to Jesus, the crucified Savior at the cross. And so here's the key thing. Notice the order. Notice when we do that. Like we're not, we don't have to have it figured out. We don't have to have all the stuff figured out. We don't have to have our lives cleaned up. We don't have to have all the options secured. We don't have to have all the, the boundaries marked. We just fully and foolishly surrender our hosannas at the cross. Like, my tendency is to try to figure it all out first and then to start to surrender my hosanna, my longing at the cross. But Jesus is inviting me to let all of that figuring it out coming after coming to his feet and surrendering to him. We don't have to have it figured out. The, the invitation is just to come to the cross, just to, to, to lay it down fully and foolishly at Jesus' feet. And as we do this, um, we, we begin to experience our lives, our, the stories of our lives become renewed. We get new stories. In a way, we get restoried, like Mary of Bethany. And what this means is that no longer do we need to live under the curse of the shadow of our mistakes or of our brokenness, or of our junk. We don't need to live under that shadow. We are no longer named according to that name. And no longer do we need to live as a victim of our circumstances. But rather we get new stories. They get wrapped up in Jesus' story, the story of the gospel. And we begin to discover who we truly are. There will not be a resuscitation, but a resurrection. And resurrection means not just like a, a, a kind of, you know, uh, steroid shot to the old thing, but a new life, a new story. We'll not be better managers of our junk, but we're learning to live according to a new story. Here's an, here's an example, and I've, I've, I've told um, a little bit of this story before, but an example of what this looks like um, is uh, uh, friends of ours back in Little Rock, um, a woman who five years ago suffered a stroke. She was 34 when she had a stroke. Uh, three kids. Completely changed her life. She is an icon for me of, of Mary of Bethany, of what it looks like to take her junk, to take these circumstances, and to bring them to the foot of the cross. She knows how to encounter Jesus in her weakness, in her brokenness. She is learning a new story, even as she still grapples with the, the pain of the circumstance. She's learning who she is post-stroke. She's such an icon for me of what it looks like to bring my junk and to seek Jesus, encountering him in my weakness without trying to get it all put together first. Friends, if you feel like you have a Hosanna in your deep, but you don't understand it, or it's confusing, or it's threatening, or it's scary, or it's embarrassing, you can surrender it at the foot of the cross. And that's my invitation to you tonight. 
you, you probably learn with me, and I, I very rarely will do this. It's like I'm going to give you three steps for how to figure this out in your life, a new plan for your life. There's no three steps to this. There's just right now. There's just today. There's right here as we come and as we gather together as God's people and worship. The invitation is tonight to come and surrender your hosannas to Jesus, to encounter him right where it is. Just to start here. You don't have to have the whole thing figured out. Just start here. Friends, our King and Liberator has heard our cry. He has come to set us free from bondage to brokenness, not by force or cheap pronouncement, but by absorbing our violence and sin on the cross. Like Mary of Bethany, we can surrender our hosannas at the foot of our crucified Savior, fully and foolishly entrusting ourselves to him, receiving a new story. Please come and do that.